0: Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Chris Fivoli, Staff Actuary, Communications and Public Affairs at the CIA. In today's episode, we will be speaking to CIA member Mike DeConing. Mike is a fellow of the CIA and is currently serving as President of Allstate Benefits and Senior Vice President of Allstate Insurance Company in the U.S. He joins us today from Jacksonville, Florida, to share some insights on his actuarial career. So Mike, thank you for taking the time to speak with
1: us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to be here.
0: So let's start off by talking about uh, your career path. I know you began working in Canada, so maybe you could tell us about your days in Canada as an actuary and how you ended up in the United States where you're working today.
1: Sure. It's a long and sordid history. Uh, <laughs> no, I went to University of Toronto and studied actuarial science at the University of Toronto and took a very, uh, I'll say, traditional career path initially with Manulife. So I joined Manulife right out of uh, university, call it college down here, but I'll use Canadianisms when I can. <laughs> um, so I joined Manulife and I spent 20 years at Manulife in a variety of roles. So I started in the actuarial program. I did a variety of roles and I got my FCIA in 1994. So I was about six years into my career. And what I found when I was working was that a lot of the roles initially were more traditional actuarial, you know, valuation, pricing, finance kind of roles. But I found I was really drawn to more, the, I'll call it the general management track. So relatively early on, I started to figure out if I was going to do something more along the general management track that I kind of need to forge my own path. At Manulife, they had a really strong actuarial support network in terms of rotations and other things like that. But to a large degree, they were focused more on traditional actuarial kind of roles, whether they be pricing or valuation or up through, I'll call it CFO, more along the chief actuary track. So I started realizing early on that I kind of needed to figure out if I wanted to run a business one day, (laughs) how would I go about doing that and started going down that path. So, you know, I gravitated more towards business management roles and as the sort Sort of actuarial rotations came up. I started especially a, a few years after I got my FCIA, I started kind of breaking out of the I'll call it the traditional actuarial rotation and moving into more business role. And that, you know, I started running relatively small businesses at Manulife. It was a great training ground from that perspective. But about 10 years into my career, I started running a business in the reinsurance division at Manulife and then kind of found my passion as it relates to what I wanted to do. So I ran the retrocession business for a number of years at Manulife and so in the Retrocession business here, the reinsurers reinsure. So most of the reinsurers across North America and globally were our clients at Manu. And so I got to know all the reinsurers. I spent the last 12 months or so at ManuLife in a more of a corporate risk role. Thought, you know, I, I'd been in reinsurance for a little while and was feeling that if I was going to stay at ManuLife, I had to break out of the reinsurance role and reinsurance division, or else I'd be Mike the reinsurance guy. Um, so I, I moved over to corporate risk for about a year responsible for a number of different types of risk, product risk, economic cap, model development, that kind of stuff. But then towards the latter part of 07, I was recruited by Munich Re to run their U.S. life business. And so I did that for 10 or 11 years and ran their reinsurance business, group individual, life, disability, some long-term care, et cetera, et cetera. And then after being there for 10 and a bit years, I left and then joined Allstate Benefits, which is where I am now.
0: All right. Most of our listeners, I believe, are from Canada, so they may not be as familiar with Allstate Benefits. So I'm hoping you could tell us a bit about the company, but in particular, what are the things that are taking up the bulk of your attention these days? What are you most concerned about from your role as president of Allstate Benefits?
1: Sure. So one of the things when I came down from Canada to the U.S. is you have to tackle healthcare. And so, you know, not being from here in the U.S., but, you know, having sort of the government provided healthcare that we have in Canada, there's a whole different process around procuring healthcare. So primarily it's through employers. And so there's obviously a lot of medical carriers. And in Canada, every few years when your employer made changes to their benefits, you might go through what they call open enrollment. So you'd actually re-enroll in your benefits and pick and choose. Or, Or if you had a life event you got married you had kids your kids moved out of the house whatever it would happen to be you would might change your benefit elections in Canada every once in a while but it was very you know sort of very sort of uh, I would say consistent and, and you didn't make very many changes very often. Well, in the US, you go through an open enrollment process every year because employers are ma- either making tweaks or changes, or there could be cost changes in their medical benefits. So that drives a whole enrollment process. So at all state benefits, we're not in the employer paid medical or life or disability but we are in what's called voluntary so that is when you're going through your open enrollment here in the u.s you can obviously you make your medical elections your life your disability but then there's a whole bunch of other products you can buy whether it's critical illness accident, sort of hospital indemnity, short-term disability, permanent life, whatever it would happen to be. So all that kind of employer, employee paid benefits, that's what we do for a living. So we're primarily in the benefits business. We do business with all size employers, everything from, you know, Joe's Pizzeria on the corner, all the way through to some of the largest employers in the U.S. Our book is, we have about four and a half million policyholders, a little less than that, and 55,000 employer groups. It's a very diverse business and people buy our products either through some kind of agent assistance. So whether it's call center face-to-face, of course, that currently isn't possible with COVID, but face-to-face, the kind of work that we'll call a traditional worksite business where the agent assisted or for larger employers, especially they use benefit administration platforms. So you, you go online and you Pick all your benefit elections there. And our products are on those benefit platforms. Most of our business is distributed through brokers. Sometimes those brokers are just selling voluntary, usually in smaller employer situations. For large employers, the brokers, they, they could be, you know, the large, the Aon's, the Mercers, uh, Willis Towers, Watson, et cetera, et cetera, those players, they're doing full benefit consulting all the way through helping them design their medical plan and putting together, you know, the medical RFP for all the medical insurers, and then they do the life and disability, and then they do the voluntary. So we distribute through all types of brokers like that. The last thing I'd say that's a little unique about our business is because most of it is handled through this open enrollment timeframe, most employers do this open enrollment in the fourth quarter. So we probably get, you know, well over 50% of our new business and activity around uh, procuring our business it happens in that one quarter. So, you know, we kind of always staff up fourth quarter and that creates some interesting operational issues, but that's another kind of unique thing about our business.
0: I know very little about, you know, individual health insurance myself, but I understand one of the challenges is you need sort of the young and healthy people to come in to balance off, you know, the older Population that has perhaps more medical conditions, but because it's voluntary, there's a tendency for the younger ones to say, I'm healthy, I don't need insurance. Is that a real issue? And, and if it is, how do you deal with it?
1: So it would be more in the individual space. So, as you mentioned, individual medical, what we're primarily dealing with here is employer paid medical, or at least employer procured medical. It's not always 100% employer paid. So, most employers, especially when you get into the 50, employees and above offer some level of medical insurance or at least access to medical insurance. So to a large degree, our products that we sell are kind of built to help Pay for some of the out of pockets that go along with the employer paid medical. So, for example, you may or may not have heard of high deductible health plans. And so, employers have moved more and more to these higher deductible health plans so that, you know, frankly, it drives the premium down or at least reduces the premium increases. <laughs> and more of the cost is shifted then to the employee. So they've got to pay the first two or three thousand dollars or up to five or seven thousand dollars of medical costs before the insurance kicks in or there's a copay or something like that. So our products to a large degree are designed for The employee to purchase to help them cover some of those out of pocket costs. So, in the easiest example to think about is, you know, somebody has, if they get diagnosed with cancer, you know, the cost of that is very significant. Now, most of that is covered by their employer paid healthcare, but, you know, the first $3,000, $5,000 might have to come out of their pocket, the employee's pocket. They also probably may have some co pays, they may have other things, they may have to get a babysitter, they may have some modifications to their home, whatever. would happen to be so critical illness as an example fits into that really neatly and you know it's one of the things we do we work with employers to design the critical illness plan for that employer so that it fits neatly into helping the employee cover their risk in the event of a major critical illness, for example. So it's somewhat customized, especially for the really large employers, but that's the concept anyway of this voluntary coverage. And it helps to convert the unexpected medical cost into at least some level of insurance benefits that they can purchase to help supplement the expenses that come out of their pocket. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, so thanks for that. I just wanted to talk to you
0: a bit about, about actuarial practice in terms of what you've observed, both working in Canada and in the US. I know you probably don't do a lot of actuarial work anymore, but are there any things that you've noticed that are differences between how it's done in the two countries?
1: Yeah, I was really involved in it. Less so now at at the benefits side, it's very distribution and product focused. But when I was in the reinsurance business for 10 plus years in the U.S., you know, that's a very, uh, I'll say, liability driven kind of business. So I definitely have a position on that, (laughs) whether it's the right or wrong one, I don't know. I would say the differences in actual practice is changing. It used to be, you know, I would have put Canadian actuaries well ahead of U.S. actuaries and hopefully there's no U.S. actuaries listening. Just kidding. Um you know i would have put them ahead of us actuaries because they were trained at a very young age basically as soon as they start working, to think of actuarial principles and reserving was principles-based. The capital that you had to hold was very principles-based, which was very much what risk are you looking at covering? What's your best estimate assumption for that risk? And then adding some layer of provision for solvency. That was the regulatory framework. And interestingly, the regulatory framework and the gap framework was actually very similar. In fact, in Canada, identical, right? If you go to the US, and this is changing with principles-based reserves and and some of the changes to US GAAP standards, but if you go to the US, it it has historically been very rigorous, very formula-driven. The assumptions were prescribed the methodology for calculating the reserve was prescribed so to a large degree the actuary's job was to make sure they were applying those formula and the assumptions correctly as opposed to really coming at it from a principles basis so you know that and even on the capital side that was very true i'm back when mccsr was being introduced it was very much more principles based than it was prescriptive and formula based the rbc framework is still quite formula based i think part of the The reason why I think there was a big difference, especially, you know, even 10, 15, 20 years ago, was the training of the actuary when they started out and the work they did from the beginning was very different in terms of, focus around principles versus formula, and and I'll call it following a more prescriptive methodology. You know, you've got movement towards principles-based reserves here in the U.S. You've got some of the gap improvements, they call them, that are moving much more to a a more principles-based approach. You've got more and more companies, especially over the last 10 years, who have adopted economic capital frameworks in addition to their gap and or their statutory framework. So that is again very much more principles based. So I think the differences are actually narrowing significantly. But I would have said 10 plus years ago for sure that Canadian actuaries had a very different perspective. The last thing I would add is the regulatory framework is also really, really different. Right. So Canadian regulatory framework is primarily driven by a single regulator from a solvency perspective. So the whole solvency regime and everything is defined by the national regulator and they are very consultative with the industry. In the U.S., the regulator, it's obviously a 50-state regulation environment, so it's obviously very, very different. And the level of staffing and sophistication and so on and so forth at the individual state level varies considerably. You can have a department that is very well-staffed, very aware of kind of principles and issues around risk, and other ones are frankly not as sophisticated. The last thing I would say on the regulatory side is, interestingly enough, there's a fair number of regulators in the U.S. that are actually elected. They're elected officials, which is, again, a very different framework and a very different focus for the regulator than the Canadian system. So all of that puts together a very different approach But I would say moving towards a similar, deeply principled based environment.
0: Okay, I'm very happy to see that you're still a member of the CIA. I'm just wondering, how do you maintain your connection to the profession in Canada, given that you've been out of the country
1: now for over a dozen years? It's interesting. When I was at Manulife, even though I was working in Toronto, almost all of my career I've spent on uh, non-Canadian businesses. So it's kind of interesting that I was CFO of one of the Canadian businesses for a couple of years in the mid-90s, but almost all of the rest of my career at Manulife was either US or international focused. So that said, of course, the fundamental principles and all the reserving and all the capital and stuff was all Canadian based. I moved to Munich Re in 2008. The reporting construct was that the U.S. and Canadian business reported up to the head of North America. So it was still quite connected to my Canadian colleagues and my boss who was in Toronto at the time. But also, it wasn't a huge leap from... The Canadian principles-based approach to reserving and capital and so on and so forth to the European sort of economic value, economic capital kind of approach, which again is very principles-based. So I felt, I would say, quite connected during most of my time in Munich. I would be blunt. I'm probably losing a bit of that connection now. While Allstate Benefits, we have a Canadian business uh, that reports up through me. It's relatively small and I'll call it fledgling because it's growing really well. But you know, the voluntary business is smaller, uh, much smaller in Canada than it is in the US. So it's a little harder to keep the connection, to be honest with you, now that I don't have as much day-to-day interaction and Canadian business contact. So it's a, it's quite a bit harder now.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's wrap up with final question. What advice would you have for actuaries that aspire to a senior leadership role or CEO type role that you're in now? What are the things they should be focusing on?
1: Run, never do it. Uh, No. um, I, I think one of the things I would say there's a few things I would that come to mind one one is forge your own path, and what I mean by that is is when I was at Manu there was that path of sort of you know you go from this actual role to that actual role and then you graduate to a CFO a mini CFO and then you become a bigger unit CFO et cetera et cetera I, I didn't like that path because I wanted to run a business one day now ultimately, you can run a business when you go through that path so i don't I don't want to you know sort of a, a, a denigrate that path but I, I felt quite differently about it. So I felt I needed to forge my own path, which involves taking some risk, right? So from a career perspective, from doing something outside of actuarial roles. So that's kind of the second piece of it, which is don't stick to actuarial roles. Really do your best to understand the business of, in my case, the insurance business. So one of the things that was great about the retrocession business that I ran at ManU was I had everything from underwriting all the way through to claims and operations and everything. It was a relatively small business at the time but you really understood how underwriting impacted mortality which impacted price which impacted valuation which impacted operation and all the data that goes into that all of that understanding the business I'll call it soup to nuts from front to back um, really came about because I didn't stick with traditional actuarial roles and I think it gives you a much more well-rounded view of the business and understanding of the business. So two other things I'd say is one is be a student of leadership because as actuaries, we're trained to be really good technicians to start with. And generally, if you get through the exams, you're probably relatively intelligent, Um, but that doesn't mean you know how to lead people doesn't not mean that you know how to inspire people. So there's a piece of your development as a person and as a leader that you have to learn. You have to keep learning about what leadership is and what is an effective way of leading and look for mentors that that are not necessarily actuaries, but have been effective at leading groups of people. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, at Allstate, we've, we're a very purpose-driven organization. And one of the questions that was asked of me when I was being interviewed is, what's your purpose? And you you know, you start with, wow, okay, that's a pretty deep question. But think about what is it about you that makes you who you are and bring that to work. Bring your whole self to work and make sure that that purpose is consistent with the values of the organization and how you lead people. Because if it isn't, then people see through it. So that's really important, in my personal opinion, to make you an effective leader is that people see that you you know you walk the talk you are who you are both at work and at home those are sort of the areas that i would say i don't know if the, i would say that have made me successful because you know that's in the eye of the beholder um, but but at least it's it's kind of driven and guided me through my uh, career journey so far
0: all right well that's some good advice uh, thanks very much for for taking the time to speak with us today you're
1: most welcome you're most welcome i enjoyed
0: it We now have several dozen episodes in our podcast series, so we encourage you all to subscribe. You can do so through Spotify, Apple, or whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. And if you like today's episode, we'd like you to leave us a five-star rating or a comment. And we'd also like to hear from you, so please send any suggestions or episode ideas to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. As well, we're always looking for content for our Seeing Beyond Risk blog, so if you have some ideas you would like to share, please contact us at seeingbeyondrisk at cia-ica.ca. Until next time, I'm Chris Fiboli, and thank you for tuning in to Seeing Beyond Risk.